Good morning. Glad you guys are here today. Uh, warning, this will be the longest sermon of the life and teaching series. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, the notes are available for you on the blog at theologyinthedirt.com. There's right at 10 pages. Um, and I'm not breaking this one up. Bathrooms over there. If you need to go, feel free. It's a water fountain. Get what you need. When it comes to what Paul told Timothy there, what's at stake is life and death. We don't want to shortchange life and death because, well, we can't sit. And so I think we'll be okay. All right? So um, angels and demons. Water angels and demons. Uh, when we started out on this, we wanted to cover the basics. We want to make sure we laid a foundation for us to grow off of, and this is, this is one that is very easy to overlook. And there's a reason behind that, and we'll address that as we go. Um, when a whole church, and I would say probably this is the first time in 20 years of public ministry once we launched in March of 2003. We were working before March of 2003, but we didn't have a public service until March of 2003. This might be the first time in our history that an entire church is kind of finally bought into a Bible reading plan and are all reading it together. With that, however, is the phenomena of, I always thought, but I was always told. And you have to begin to wrestle with what the Bible is saying versus what you've always thought and what you've always been told. And that's a good wrestling, that's okay. In discovering what the Bible says about this unseen realm of angels and demons, you're sure to be confronted with pop theology as you let the Bible speak for itself. As I've told you before, this is the theological cave I've been in for a while. I'm still in it, still finding my way around in this theological cave because it's just far too easy, as I've said before. I discover myself, 50 years old, been a Christian since I was 20, reading my Bible through since I was 20, once, once a year, every year. New Testament Psalms twice, Old Testament once a year for 30 years. The more I let the Bible speak and say what it says, the more it confronts what I bring to it and try to make it say. When it comes to this world of the unseen realm, it is, this is one of those things where I just don't want the Bible to say what it says because it confronts my naturalism. So today, we're going to keep it fairly general, uh, but there's enough scripture in here. Uh, and there's enough sentences that are loaded, very loaded, to keep you busy for the next six months. So, and at the very end, I've included some books that I would encourage you to read uh, that are my favorites on the subject, um, and, and a couple of Bible Project videos that are gold. Bible Project is fantastic. Google Bible Project and go watch. These guys are scholars par excellence, and they do fantastic videos that are animated in nature and do a great job of dealing with Bible content. So I just put you a couple of links there. So let's read together our text that we're going to launch from. Now, as we do a systematic study, it's not expositional in nature, like we're not studying through this whole scripture. We're going to, a lot of scripture, but we're going to launch from 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 and 17 today. So if you'd stand, we're going to read this together. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 to 17 should be on your screen. 
When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. backdrop, Syria's king is seeking to do away with Israel and set ambushes. But somehow, the Lord informs the prophet Elisha what's coming, and Elisha will inform the king of Israel, and thus the king of Israel would not fall into the trap and deliver Israel from Syria. Syria's king goes to his court, and he says, who in here is telling the prophet what's happening? And one of them says, nobody. It's like he's listening in. (laughs) We don't know. And he goes and he tells, and then they're able to avoid. The king of Syria says, well, we got to get rid of this cat. We're not going to be able to get rid of our enemy if they have a guy who's somehow hearing our plans and telling the army, and they're avoiding us. And so they mobilize an army, and they go down to the city where Elisha and his servant are staying And early in the morning, as we just read, the servant wakes and he goes outside and there's an army encamped against them. He goes and he wakes Elisha and he says, they're here. What are we supposed to do? And Elisha knows. His faith, his trust in the Lord, his walking with God, he's learned, he knows that there is, in fact, an unseen realm. And the reason this army has not advanced upon them in surprise... Is because God is doing the protecting and so he prays Lord open his eyes so that he can see and the Lord opens his servant's eyes and he looks and what he couldn't see he now saw and the Lord had stationed all around them an army of his own and what's interesting to me is I'm sure the Syrians wondered why are we not going past this what order was given that we're not supposed to go further there they are we've got an open range we can finish the task accomplish the mission and for whatever reason they're stopped and the text doesn't tell us what was going on but they just stopped and they stopped because God said stop and he sent his hosts to ensure that it was done (laughs) the hosts were present they're still unseen Elisha knew this and said his faith caused him to respond differently than his servant the unseen realm and what happens in it matters to us because it matters in the Bible 1 Timothy 4.16 keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this for by so doing you save both yourself and your hearers again angels and demons are important to Christians because they are part of the fabric of created reality And they play a role in the narrative of the Bible and are involved in things happening to us, around us, for us, even to us and inside of us. Angels and demons are broad categories for the unseen realm and the unseen hosts that are presented in the Bible. These broad terms, when you get down into the text of Scripture, are much more nuanced, and we're going to look at those in just a few moments. 
One of the serpent's greatest lies is the religion of naturalism that says he and a host of his followers do not exist and there's no battle between good and evil. The religion of naturalism, and yes, it is a religion. It is a religious worldview. And the center, the God of naturalism is humanity. Material, the only thing that can be seen, the only thing that has will and power is man and man's rule over creation or even creation itself is a religious worldview. And this religion of naturalism has caused us to misread Genesis 1 to 3 so that we miss one of the greatest storylines of the Bible. And that storyline is that we interact with the unseen realm in a divine world. But it's caused us to miss one of the greatest storylines of the Bible when we relegate the serpent to a debate about evolution and snake legs. A little quote from Michael Heiser in his book, The Unseen Realm. It's a bit misguided when someone attempts to defend biblical literalism, especially Genesis 1 to 3, by appealing to evolutionary history of snakes. In any way, the whole approach misses the point. It also presumes the villain was simply an animal. He wasn't. If, in fact, there is an unseen realm that interacts with the visible, physical world, then to ignore that unseen realm would be foolish, wouldn't it? And to miss a storyline of the biblical narrative that then leaves a hole in our understanding. We can't afford to do that. That's why Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and your teaching. Persist in this, because in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The Bible does tell us that this unseen world is indeed very real. It's indeed very powerful. And we interact with it whether we are aware of it or not. So let's go back to the beginning. Remember I told you, I've been telling you for years, if you want to get the storyline of your whole Bible, you need to get Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 12 down. You need to know it. It is the framework for everything else that happens. So we go back to the beginning. The garden's the place the Lord communed with his image bearers. The garden of Eden's divine turf. In fact, in Ezekiel's prophetic rebuke of the king of Tyre, you can read this in Ezekiel chapter 28, in Ezekiel's prophetic rebuke of the king of Tyre, and there's a similar prophetic rebuke of Babylon in Isaiah 14. Ezekiel browbeats the prince of Tyre using the ancient tale of divine arrogance in Eden, where a member of Yahweh's council thought himself on par with the Most High. And this divine being was expelled from Eden to the underworld. Among the many truths we can glean in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 11 to 19 is that what happened in Eden with the serpent was indeed real. And that many, including in this instance in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre, has followed in the footsteps of the serpent, choosing to be his descendants. In fact, when Jesus, and we'll cover this in just a few moments, in John chapter 8, verse 44, when Jesus tells the Pharisees and those following the Pharisees that you are of your father, the devil, for he's a liar and the father of lies, and he's been lying the whole time. And then Matthew 23, 33, Jesus calls those same people, guess what? Serpents. That's not Jesus making stuff up. Jesus is preaching from the text he inspired. That those who followed in the rebellion have followed in the footsteps of the serpent, and they are children of the serpent. 
And so therefore we learn this in Ezekiel 28 that the king of Tyre is one of the followers of the serpent and the deception and rebellion against the Lord. Another truth we can glean from Ezekiel in that section is that Eden was a place of mountains and streams and lush vegetation that was where the Lord and his host and his new image-bearing co-regents interacted with each other and dwelled together. The king of Tyre's arrogance is said to be on par with this creature's arrogance who, in freedom, in his freedom, didn't want to go along with God's plan of the image bearers being his co-regents. So he led a rebellion against the Lord and would come after those image bearers to destroy them. Thus we get Genesis chapter 3. A rebellion in the unseen realm has already begun taking place in the opening verses of Genesis. Now, there's a lot of room for the timing of this, but it's likely already in play. And in spite of this, the Bible tells us that everything God created is very good. But you'll notice that God never calls the darkness good. He distinguishes purposely between light and darkness, and a separation has occurred, and the ripple effects can already be felt. At the beginning of Genesis 2 and the close of creation, the Lord finishes creating all the hosts of heaven. And you'll find as you study through your Bible, hosts in the Old Testament and New mainly refer to these supernatural beings in this unseen realm of the Lord's creation. Psalm 148 verse 2 is an example for you. It says, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. Now we know hosts refers to angels because that's how Hebrew poetry works, one. But number two, verse three talks about like planets and stars. So he's not talking about planets and stars. When he's talking about the hosts, he's talking about these divine supernatural creatures that God has made for a purpose. So when God had finished creating all the hosts of heaven, he has finished his creation, including all the angelic beings, and it is completed. And in his completion, there's already trouble. We read all over the Bible, these supernatural beings are vast in number, indicated by such terms as host in Luke 2.13, camp in Genesis 32, legions in Matthew 26, thousands in Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, Daniel 7, Jude 14, and Revelation 5. Now when the Lord creates his image bearers, he places them in his garden, and he places among the vegetation what? Two trees. Because there's already evil. These two trees tell us there's already been evil forces now who have propagated a rebellion and are striving against the Lord and his image bearers. And he lets Adam and Eve know you don't want to get into this fight. Don't do this. The knowledge of good and evil is not yet known by Adam and Eve, but evil already exists. And it's been done by forces we have not yet been introduced to and are about to get introduced to in the serpent. Here's a little warning for you in your Bible study. An overly literal interpretation of Genesis 1 to 2 doesn't need to be your default hermeneutic. We don't have to prove anything against Darwinian macroevolution. There's nothing to prove. You interpret literally. Here's your, when we did our exegesis class, this is one of the things you need to know. You interpret literally unless it's evident it's not literal. Make sense? This is one of those instances in which he does not intend you to interpret the serpent as a snake and try to fit it into an evolutionary framework. Come on now, track with me here. Moses, he didn't even think, he's Mesopotamian in his background. They have a supernatural worldview. Darwin and the foolishness of that religious worldview hasn't even, I mean, it's so far out. You, like, 
just going to say this here, like we need to stop as Christians trying to prove the Bible fitting in a naturalistic framework, which is a religious worldview that is so far off the mark, it's laughable. Like mathematically, it's actually laughable. So can we just stop with that garbage, right? Let's, we don't have to do that. All right? So we interpret literally unless it's evident that it's not supposed to be literal. And what's evident here is there's more happening than historical narrative. Moses, under the flawless and errant inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pulling the curtain back because remember, Moses is writing this as they're preparing to go into Canaan and get after what God told them to get after. So he's pulling the curtain back for Israel to see the full scope of the work in front of them as they prepare to enter the promised land and who they are really combating. This, this next sentence is going to be so full that it'll be a year for you to unpack it. And this is all I can say because I'm not bringing you into my cave right now. I'm not ready to bring you into my cave and you're not ready to go into the cave. Trust me. Genesis 6 is going to give them a glimpse into the battle they face and the spies in Numbers 13 are going to give a bad report of the land because of it. Go read. Go read. They all, all of them have a robust supernatural worldview rooted in Mesopotamia, not North American post-enlightenment. At Babel, God disinherits the nations, Genesis 11, in judgment for their rebellion, and he banishes them to the rulership of evil forces, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. You're going to have to wrestle with that. And then he, chapter 12, calls Abraham to be the father of a people that God would choose specifically to be his instruments of reclaiming those nations from their judgment, and therefore the people's coming conquest of the promised land is the initial work of that great commission labor in rooting out and destroying the work of the serpent's followers so they can then launch from his chosen land to all nations having weakened the stronghold of the enemy in the promised land okay that that's going to help you wrestle with joshua because if you hadn't wrestled with joshua yet you're not reading your bible well enough Okay, Joshua's a challenge, and the reason it's a challenge is because we miss Genesis 6 and Numbers 13, and we miss Genesis 1 through 12. There's a lot happening in Canaan, and you need to wrap your head, heart, and mind around that. And we'll get to some application when we get to the end. Ephesians 6, Paul knows this, because he's a good Christian, and he's a good student of his Bible. Ephesians 6 tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Neither did they in Canaan. Neither did they in Egypt. Neither did they at any point in time in the Genesis narrative or never just wrestling against flesh and blood. But Paul says we wrestle against these very forces in the unseen realm while receiving help from the loyal forces of the Lord in the unseen realm. We read that in 2 Kings 6. But we can easily default to an unconscious denial of this unseen realm that is in play and consider the world that we only see in front of us with our flesh-centric eyes. We must not do that. So who in the world are these creatures of the unseen realm? Well, we've got two broad categories, I told you. Angels and demons. Now, I put a little footnote here. It's not a footnote. It's in parenthesis because I didn't want to footnote everything. I'm leaning hard on John Frame and Wayne Grudem's organization and language here. So this is all on the Internet. You can go check it. You can run it through. Um, what was that program we used to have to use when I was grading papers when I used to teach where you could find out people were plagiarizing? Turn it in. So you can go run it through Turn It In. You'll, hopefully I footnoted everything, but I'm just letting you know right here there's too much for me to footnote, so I just put a note. I'm borrowing their organizational structure. Everybody understand? 
All right, so don't like, hey, I think I read that sentence in John Frame. Yes, you did. <laughs> and I'm telling you now. All right, so angels, here's, here's my little mashup definition. Angels are created supernatural beings who are ethical, intelligent, and sometimes manifest in physical bodies. Grudem says they do not manifest in physical bodies, and I think he's full of hooey. And he's read his Bible better. Because <laughs> it's evident they do. So, I'm departing there. Angels are created supernatural beings who are ethical or intelligent and sometimes manifest in human bodies. So I've got a lot of points here. Number one, angel in Greek and Hebrew means messenger. So angels we find throughout the text of Scripture carry out the purposes of the Lord from carrying news and instructions to providing praise to the Lord and fighting with and for God's people, which we read in 2 Kings chapter 6. Sometimes angelic company is mixed, meaning that some of the Lord's loyal hosts may be gathered in front of him. See Job chapters 1 and 2. But among those loyal followers of the Lord in the unseen realm, there comes one who is sneaking in their midst and provides a challenge to the Lord from the dark kingdom. Number two, angels and their ordering for the purposes of the Lord are created by the Lord. I know that's an awkward sentence, so I'm going to read it again. Angels and their ordering for the purposes of the Lord are created by the Lord. Listen to Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created. What things were created? All things. So the distinction the Bible makes from the beginning to the end is the Lord, Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible, is the creator. There are no other creators. He is the one. He's the beginning and the end. Everything else is created, okay? So all things created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we read in the scriptures, there's a distinction in these angelic beings designated whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And there's some manner of organizational order that the Bible simply doesn't elaborate on. And so I put a little note of caution here. We have to be careful with creating a structure the Bible doesn't create. It tells us there's some manner of order. It just doesn't tell us what it is. Number three, angels then exercise ethical judgment. Listen to Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness till the judgment of the great day. So they made a decision. They left their position that God put them in and they rebelled against the Lord and they've suffered the consequence for it. So we see that they have ethical judgment. They know right and wrong. 2 Peter 2.4 is another good example. We won't take time to read it, but it's there for you to go reference. Number four, angels are intelligent. We find them in the scriptures communicating with people and carrying on conversations. Acts chapter 12, verse 6 to 11 is one of my favorite scriptures. Because it's just kind of fun. Now listen to what happened when Peter got thrown in jail. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, I love when the Bible says and behold. I don't know why that just, it kind of makes me giggle because it's kind of like, look at this and behold. 
Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he didn't know that what was being done by the angel of the Lord was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and second guard, passed the guards, it's crazy. And they came to the iron gate leading the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all the Jewish people were expecting. So they're intelligent, communicative, go on the mission of the Lord, do what he sends them to do, and provides some manner of connection to this supernatural world that facilitates his people's rescue. That's kind of cool. That's pretty neat, huh? Number five, angels are distinct in their designated and inspired descriptions in the Bible. They're distinct in their designated and inspired descriptions in the Bible. These distinctions and order seem to stay intact with the evil forces who went with the serpent. And we're not going to have time to cover that. Just, there's the passage in Daniel where Michael is sent in answer to Daniel's prayer. And Michael tells Daniel, like, I was sent when you started asking, but I've been contending with the prince of Persia. Whoa, what's that? But we won, and I'm here now. This is is not in your notes. This is free. If you're praying and waiting on the Lord, you never know where that answer is in transit. Which is why the Lord taught us in Luke 18, he taught them this parable that they ought to pray at all times and not lose heart. Okay? But they're distinct in their designated and inspired descriptions. Genesis 6-2, Job 1-6, and Job 2-1 call some of them sons of God. Some Bible scholars are going to call that designation, they're going to say that's Jacob. And I disagree with them, and there's room for debate there, but I disagree with them, and others disagree with them. But some of their distinctions, they're called sons of God. Psalm 89, verse 5-7, to some are called holy ones. Hebrews 1.14, some are called spirits. Daniel 4.13, 17 and 23, some are called watchers. That makes me a little nervous. Some are called thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, Colossians 1.16. Number six, there are other kinds of angelic beings that are even more distinct. So the Bible gets even more granular when it describes these three different kinds. The first one is cherubim. Cherubim are flanking the Lord's throne. That's kind of what that word means, flanking the Lord's throne. We see them in Genesis 3.24, cherubim are put there. And by the way, cherubim is plural, it's not singular. In the Hebrew language, the I am at the end is plural, so there are many cherubs. But the cherubim are placed to guard the way back to this place of Eden where there is this interplay continually present physically with the eyes between heaven and earth. Which, by the way, which is one of the reasons you'll find in the Bible, you'll find it in all other literature. Divine things happen on mountains, around streams, and in gardens. It's just all over the Bible, which is why in Babel, in Genesis 11, they were trying to build a tall tower. Not that they thought they were going to reach heaven. They understood that if we get up high, that's where the interaction happens. 
So the cherubim were placed there. Psalm 18, 10, Ezekiel 10, verse 1 to 22, the Lord is said to be enthroned on the cherubim, and he travels with the cherubim in his chariot. I won't see that. Exodus 25, 18 to 21, and verse 22, God had two cherubim formed for the top of the Ark of the Covenant where he speaks with Moses and instructs him about Israel. Then there's seraphim. This was really interesting. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2 to 7 says, The seraphim constantly praise the Lord. These hosts, they're called seraphim. And these are the ones who are constantly crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. It was one of the reasons I think when we sing the song, Holy, 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 it always gives me goosebumps. And I think the reason it gives me goosebumps is because we're matching the cadence and the praise that's happening now. That kind of getting on that wavelength is pretty special. But seraphim literally is fiery or serpent. Seraphim is fiery and serpent. That's what seraphim means. This helps us to see what Moses is doing when he tells us about the serpent in the garden. It lets us know his identity. He's not a snake. Okay? Like, wipe that from your memory. If we could, like, do, like, men in black and, like, like the memory eraser, I would, like, have y'all get rid of all that garbage. He's not a snake. He's a seraph. He's one of these beings that has rebelled against the Lord. Everybody tracking? And there's a reason he uses this language, but that's, like, 23 sermons. And I told you it's a deep cave. But it helps us to see what Moses is doing. He's letting them know that this is our battle. As we head into Canaan, we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not about just Og, king of Bashan. Og is descended from what happened in Genesis 6. And we have to do this in order to launch to reach the nations disinherited in Genesis 11. Because that was Abraham's call to preach this good news to all nations. Which is why it's our call. This is an application later, but I'm going to go ahead and this is why Great Commission work is hard because it's not just flesh and blood we're tearing down supernatural forces in that realm that have a stranglehold on people's theologies and their lives and if we ignore that we're going to get bloodied and we wonder what happened so our prayer and fasting are essential not just keep pounding the hammer it's get in the closet when nobody's looking and pray Listen, louder, longer, and bloodier is not how we get God's attention. That's the prophets of Baal. That's a different team. That's the the dark demonic team. Jesus said, you want God's attention? Fast so nobody sees. Pray so nobody thinks you're spiritual. And nobody knows what you're doing. And the God who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly because it's not about us and our manipulation. That's how the serpent's kingdom works. We don't do it like the serpent's kingdom. We do it with the Lord getting all the attention because that's what's in play. That's not in the notes. I don't know where that came from, but there you go. Seraphim is fiery serpent. He's not a snake, but he's an angelic being who's rebelled. And he's been sentenced to crawl in the dust. And in Hebrew, that is being sentenced to the underworld. Second Peter talks about that. Jude talks about that. They're awaiting judgment and at the same time causing problems. These seraphim, some are loyal, 
and serve the intended purpose of the Lord. And then the third distinction is living creatures. We see this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 68, Ezekiel 1, 5 to 14. These living creatures that are full of eyes, front and behind, and all these faces, these living creatures, they have six wings, the guys all over them, and they're worshiping the Lord. So that's some of the distinction. Number seven, angels show up in our lives without our knowledge. You ever read Hebrews 13, 2 and been mystified and then walk around every day going, right? Listen to this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And we know this from Genesis, right? There, Genesis chapter 18, Abraham's there, and Yahweh, the Lord, walks up with two of these heavenly hosts as his sidekicks, and they interact with him and tell him what they're going to do down in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did he do? He showed them hospitality. Remember, the New Testament authors never leave the text of the Old Testament. They never leave the text. They're not making stuff up. So we don't neglect to show hospitality like Abraham did because sometimes when we're showing hospitality, God has sent something to us for some reason, and we miss it if we're like, I ain't got time for you. Get on, right? And so sometimes they show up without our knowledge. Number eight, there are two angels who are named for us in the Bible. There's Michael, Jude 9, Revelation 12, 7 and 8, and Daniel chapter 10. Um, Jude 9 says this, and I have, I have a comment here. It's very important. I think it's important. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devils, disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I think there's some instruction there for us. Number one, there's sometimes some schools of thought that just tell us to go all ham on the spiritual world and just grab them with authority and command them. I need to be careful with that. Jesus sent out the disciples and they came back and said, man, you're right, the demons are subject to us in your name. In your name. We have a tendency to just try to think they're subject to us. And Jude tells us, not even, not even Michael the archangel presumed to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Does that make sense? Just get it in the right order. Lest we begin to think ourselves like the serpent, higher than we really are, put yourself in the right place and recognize it's the Lord that's going to do the rebuking, not me. And so whatever I do, I try to, it's like the Lord rebuke you, lest I act like the serpent and his team. You take that for what it's worth. And then there's Gabriel, special name for me because our oldest is Gabriel. Daniel chapter 8, verse 16, Daniel 9, Luke 1. I was translating for a Hebrew assignment, Daniel chapter 8. I'm a translator, ancient languages, worthless degree. <laughs> Serves you well, but nobody wants to pay for it in the public square. Hey, can you come translate this Hebrew for me? <laughs> sure. Nobody asked that. I never get any email inquiries for that one. Um, so it's translating Daniel chapter 8 for a project. It's actually for the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Our, my Hebrew professor was one of the editors of the CSB, and uh, we were, I think we were doing free labor. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> But I hope he didn't use any of our translation work because it was bad. But I ran across the name Gabriel, and I didn't recognize it as a proper name. I recognized it as, as a verb and construct with one of the generic names of God, El, Gabar, El. And, and you don't know what construct is. See, I just told you it's a worthless degree. Helps me teach you. But nonetheless, 
Gabar El, and it translates literally mighty one of God, one that is mighty in God. And Jennifer was pregnant with Gabriel at the time, and, and I came home, I was like, you know, we work in our jobs and doing all our stuff, and I was like, I got it, because you struggle with names. You're having your first baby, you're going, you're going out to eat, trying to figure out names, and you come up with a good name, and she hates it, and she comes up with one, you hate it, and you're like, ah, name, name, name. Name baby's hard. And so I was like, this is it, we've got it. And I told her the story, Gabriel, and she's like, yeah, that's so we named him Gabriel because, because of this, so it's a great, so he's named after Mighty One of God. We read in Daniel chapter 8 that Gabriel was sent, and it tells us he appeared as a man, and he spoke to Daniel. And so, there's Michael, and there's Gabriel. Number nine, angels are not made in God's image, and they're not given co-regency with God over creation. Only we have co-regency, and only we have image-bearing. So they're not made in God's image, and they do not have co-regency. Redeemed humanity, in fact, 1 Corinthians 6.3 tells us that one day we will sit in judgment over the angels. Here's what he says, do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And he's getting on to them for why they're going to court with each other. He said, we're going to judge angels, man. Can't y'all work that out? It's just, and I find it interesting that it, it's, it's a passing comment. It's not the point. The point is, stop suing each other. And the reason is, we're going to judge angels. And I'm like, can you talk more about that? I get not suing each other in the church, but tell me the why again, because we're going to judge angels. What's that going to look like? So as co-regents and image bearers, we're going to sit in judgment over them one day. Ten, angels remind us that the unseen realm is real, and it overlaps with the physical world. We can't afford to be blind to this. 11, we should be aware of receiving teaching about the Lord from angelic sources as well as participating in the worship of angels. I almost should not have to say that, but Paul found it necessary to say it to the Galatians and the Colossians. We should be aware about receiving teaching about the Lord from angelic sources as well as participating in the worship of angels. Listen to Galatians 1.8. But it, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the, a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. So you mean there are angelic beings who preach a message? Wow. Okay. What about Colossians 2, 18 and 19? Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worshiping of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensual mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth is from God. So there's even the temptation to worship some manifestation in the spiritual realm. Here we begin to transition to the dark forces, the host that rebel we commonly refer to as demons. But they're so much more nuanced than demons. Some of the hosts of heaven are deceptive and will teach untruth just like the serpent did. Remember, they followed the serpent, so they follow his example. Some of the hosts of heaven are deceptive and will teach this untruth, all manner of untruths. Some are seeking worship and are willing to receive worship. This gives us some insight into what the serpent and his follower rebels are into. And we have to understand part of the work of the Great Commission is combating these deceptive forces and false worship in our city and the nations. And that work is releasing people from the judgment of the curse of sin through the preached good news of Jesus and his kingdom, that it is here and that saving is available through faith in Christ alone. 
That's why that message is so powerful because that message contradicts the serpent's message. And when you say that into the air, there is something that happens, which is why Paul will tell us it is the power of God for salvation. It defies logic. It's not because it's a logical argument. The gospel's not logical, so stop trying to make it logical. It's supernatural. And when it is spoken, it has the tendency to absolutely crush dark things. Second Corinthians eleven, twelve to fifteen. This is how it's easy to be deceived. This is you say, how do angels teach? Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians, Second Corinthians eleven, twelve to fifteen. And what I'm doing, I'll continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Why? Verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, if his servants, so Satan has servants? Yeah. What are they disguised as? Apostles, preachers, Bible teachers. Disguise themselves as servants of righteousness and their end will correspond to their deeds. Be careful who and what you listen to and read. Be careful. One of Satan's greatest tools is to teach untruth through the mouths and thoughts and intentions of people who look trustworthy but are just serpents. John 8, Matthew 23. What I find a little disturbing is I'm quite certain the Pharisees never thought themselves on Team Serpent. I doubt they had meetings where they sat in the back room and said, hey, let's serve Team Serpent today. Everybody got their, you got your ink on? We're all like, we're, t- we're tatted up. We're Team Serpent. Cover it up, though. It's like the Illuminati don't exist, but it does exist, right? It's like kind of this thing, this, this, this like, no. They were just on the side of untruth. They thought they were preserving righteousness, and in fact, what they were doing is leading people away from Jesus. So not only be careful, but be careful yourself. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you teach. Be sure of what you say. It's better to come up short than go over the line. Let the Holy Spirit do all the work. There's going to be times I come up short of saying some things because I don't want to cross that line of needing the Lord to correct me. I don't like the Lord's whippings. He spanks those he loves because they're his, right? And I'd prefer not to get as many of those as I can avoid. And so it's better to come up short than go over a line and fall into that category of being one of those that Paul warned the Corinthians about. That's why we teach you know your Bible, know your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, read it, read it, read it over, over, over again. You can't afford to not know it. There's too much in play with the dark kingdom teaching. There's never, there's never such a thing as a neutral idea. I've told you that before. All ideas go one direction or the other. They're never neutral. There's nothing neutral. Hear me? Nothing neutral. There's good and there's evil. That's how the Bible points it out. And it's good or it's evil. And it is the discerning work of the Holy Spirit and the lives of people who are reading their Bibles together on mission to know those differences. Tracking? Because there's an unseen world in play. 
It's one of the reasons that working in the local church is hard is because we're constantly counteracting false notions and ideas. What I thought, I was always told. It's what I believed, it's what I assumed. I remember teaching New Testament theology and teaching the process of exegeting the scriptures and I would give this exegesis work page, which some of you have because you've done the class and, and, and all these little things, these tools to help you read the Bible and make sense of it. And I would walk them through it, and we'd give, have a passage of Scripture, and they'd be studying it and reading it, and, and you're writing down your answers to it for point values. You're going through all this thing, and, 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 and I would ask a blatantly obvious question from the text. I would ask, well, what about X? And the answer's in the next sentence, and here's what every student inevitably did. They would look up and go, and start guessing. And I would say, no, 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 no. Just look down and read the next sentence. And look, oh, it's in the text. And I was like, yes, it's there. We have a tendency because of the curse of sin to look up from the text and start making stuff up. Every one of us do it. I do it. And we start making stuff up out of what we've always heard, what we've always been told, what that guy on TV said, that book I read two years ago. And then we read it in the Bible and go, but that's not what that dude said. And then we start questioning this, if this means what it says. Isn't that wild? Do you think that's just merely from the flesh? Probably not. There's probably stuff going on in the unseen realm around us that is affecting us in that moment. So when those things happen, stop and get down in the text. Pray, call a friend, and y'all get together. Phone a friend and figure it out. That's not in the notes either. Dad, gummit, and I'm taking more time. I, well, the reason I write is not take so much time, but it ends up taking more time. Demons, we're going to, ooh, what time is it? Lord, we got to go. Jesus, help us. Oh, God, it's 11.05. Hang with me. You good? All right, good. All right. So demons, demonic beings are angels who followed the serpent and rebelling against the Lord and who continue to do the bidding of the rebellion against the Lord and his people everywhere. Demonic beings are angels who followed the serpent and rebelling against the Lord and who continue to do the bidding of rebelling against the Lord and his people everywhere. We're not going to do much with Satan. That's like another 23 sermons, but we'll deal briefly with him. Satan's literally, the word means accuser, slanderer, and adversary. Zechariah 3.2 is one of my favorites because Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord and Strolling up next to him is Satan, the accuser, and he stands there to accuse Joshua to the Lord. He's dirty. You know he is. You know he's unclean. You know what he thought yesterday. You know what he did last week. You need to go read that because you, you, you hear those thoughts? You have those thoughts? Yeah, you know you do. This is why the good news is exceptionally good. It's because when Jesus died in our place for our sin, he was the sacrifice for what I thought and what I did. So that my merit is never based upon what I earn or what I do, but what Jesus did for me. So that when I repent, I come to faith in Jesus, I turn from my sin, and I accept and receive the Lord Jesus. He puts on me his righteousness, takes away my sin, deals with it at the cross. So that when I stand before the Lord, the Lord says, Son, daughter, so when the accuser comes to accuse the adversary comes to beat up remind him of the cross this is why this news is powerful he's the slanderer the adversary the accuser and I play that role in my house in my own life (laughs) I can't forget the past 
I can't forgive. I bring it up, myself and other people. And at that moment, I'm stepping on team adversary. We all wrestle with it. It's because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. How many times we gotta hear Paul say that to start believing it? Listen to what the Lord Jesus said about Satan, John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he doesn't stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. When Jesus says from the beginning here, he's not talking about Satan's created beginning as if God made something innately spoiled. That's not what's happening. He's speaking about the beginning of his rejection of the Lord's purposes and effort to undermine the Lord's work at the very beginning of creation. Matthew 23, 33, Jesus said, you're, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's no wonder Jesus calls the Pharisees snakes and a brood of vipers since they are the children of the devil, who's the father of lies, who is the serpent in the garden. Don't miss those arcs. Don't miss those arcs. Jesus makes a clear connection between the children of the devil and their identity as descendants of the serpent. So we see the serpent's influence played out in people who oppose Jesus. Make sense? So here's some basics to know. Number one, demons are servants. Demons, as the serpent they follow, are sources of sin that begin in our thoughts. Demons, as the serpent they follow, are sources of sin that begin in our thoughts. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's the connection there grammatically? She was led astray by the serpent and his cunning and her, our thoughts. Meaning the enemy, demons, the serpent's followers use our thoughts as means to pull us away from our devotion to Christ. This is why one of the key fruit of the Spirit is self-control, is managing ourselves, managing our thoughts so that we bring our thoughts in control and what did Paul tell the Corinthians? We take every thought captive. Your mind is the absolute veritable battleground for everything going on around you. Number two, demons are, the sole source, or demons are not the sole source of sin because of the curse of sin. Because it's easy to put demons behind every pole. I don't want you to walk away from here and see a demon everywhere. May be, may not be. And we, what we have a tendency to do with stuff like this is start blaming demons for what I really did on my own. Make sense? We don't want to do that. Demons are not the sole source of sin. Because of the curse of sin, humans have a great capacity to be a great source of sin, hurt, destruction, and deception. We do that pretty good without the help of the enemy. So we should be careful about pinning all our choices on demons when we don't need any help to wreck people or entire institutions. Does that make sense? There's a responsibility we have to take for ourselves. Number three, demons oppose the work of the Lord. We see this in Matthew 4, verse 1 to 11, when the Lord, inauguration of his ministry, he's full of the Holy Spirit. And who leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days? The Holy Spirit. I'm like, well, that's not nice. <laughs> Could we work out another deal here? But he opposes Jesus with all manner of things. And then we see Revelation 12, 10 to 13. We see the accuser of the brothers is thrown down, and he pursues the woman who had, been given, who had given birth to this child. So he is opposing the work of the Lord. Number four, demons are not sovereign, and they do not have free access to us. 
Demons are not sovereign and they do not have free access to you. Listen to me very carefully. Job 1.12 and Job 2.6 remind us that all evil entities have to pass through the permission of the Lord to do whatever they want to do. There is no free access to you or me. However, there's a however here because the Bible has a however. This is going to be hard. Demonic entities can, in fact, be instruments in the Lord's hands for your growth. But understand, as created beings, they're just instruments in the Lord's hands, and they're in His hands. So when they're wielded, they're wielded in mercy. You ever read that Luke 22 passage? It's very disturbing. Simon, Simon, behold, Look, look me in the eyes, Simon and Judah. This had to be a tough conversation. Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for your faith that may not fail. And I love the Lord the way he finishes it, because he doesn't leave Simon with an option, and when you turn. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Simon was going to turn again. Satan was going to have his best shot at him. But the Lord's prayers are always effective, which is why we need Tim this morning and first Sunday talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. When you don't know what to pray, here's the good news. You don't have to make it up. The Holy Spirit knows what to pray that's in accordance with the will of the Father. So when all you can do is lay before the Lord and cry, maybe you're on your living room floor in a fetal position because you're out of options. And the best you can do is groan before God and it hurts so bad that you have no other option. You can rest assured that the Holy Spirit prays effective prayers. <laughs> and, and that it comes through the blood of Christ. But when those moments come, those dark moments come, understand, as John Piper says, Satan is a dog on a leash. And if God chooses to give him room, he gives him room. He chooses to pull him back, he pulls him back. But know that it will only be for your good. Number five, Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Number one, possession is a terrible choice of words to describe what the New Testament describes. Possession is Catholic language. It is not Bible language. And I don't mean to be offensive if you're a Catholic. I'm just, that's truth. It's historical reality. The New Testament never uses that language. That's language we use. Vocabulary is important. The word the New Testament uses is demonize. It means to harass or influence, and there are greater and lesser examples in the New Testament of demonization. Clinton Arnold's books that I've referenced at the bottom, he's a dean, he's a dean at, um, um, at uh, Talbot School of Theology, and Clinton Arnold's gold, so I recommend all the stuff he's written in this world. Demonizes to harass, and he has great books on that. If one, means, if one means by possessed, if they mean owned, then no Christian can be owned by the enemy because we're possessed, we're owned by the Holy Spirit. You have been bought with a price. And the cross purchased those who repent and believe the gospel. So we're owned by the Holy Spirit, so Satan can never have you. And I would say this to those not belonging to Jesus, you're already under the bondage of the enemy and owned by the enemy. And the only way out from under that bondage is to come to Jesus so that the cross will purchase your way out of that and give you the Holy Spirit whereby you will be owned by the Lord. Number six, demons are subject to the people of the Lord since they are owned by the Holy Spirit. Demons are subject to us in the Lord's name. That's why we talked about in that Jude 9 passage. Be careful. We carry authority, but that authority is in the Lord's name, not in my flesh. Remember the sons of Sceva trying to imitate what Paul was doing? 
They tried to use Jesus' name but didn't have the Holy Spirit, and this demonic-filled dude jumped on them and beat them up. Right? So I'm like, <laughs> we got to laugh. We, we, I, I have, there's, anyway, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. Kara and Jennifer and Christian and I have a fun joke with Skiva. We're not Skiva, promise. We have, I should have kept my mouth shut. Now you're going to ask, Dad, gummit, that's why you stay on your notes. Stay on your notes. <sighs> well, Jesus sent the 70 out on mission and they come back saying, Lord, they're subject to us in your name. Yeah, it's because the kingdom of God has power. But we should be careful and not be presumptuous about the authority, the authority we have. So, final application. We're here. We're here. Quickly. Three of us church, what do we do with this? Number one, I'm gonna keep this real simple. Know the Lord. Know the Lord. Don't seek to know Satan, demons, and angels more than the Lord. Know the Lord. The object of the Bible is the triune God of the Bible. Get to know him. Don't spend more time studying Satan, demons, and angels than you do knowing the Lord. The old adage, it's overused, but it works. You know currency is real by studying the real thing, not counterfeits. Know the Lord. When you know the Lord, you get to know the Holy Spirit. You can distinguish very quickly between what is of the Lord and what is the dark kingdom. So know the Lord. So I tell you, read your Bible, read your Bible. You think like, he's always telling me, read my Bible. That's all he ever says is read my Bible. There's a reason behind that. Not just so you can read your Bible, but so you know the difference between the voice of the Lord and the voice of the enemy. Number two, don't assume that what you see in front of you is the only reality in play at any given moment. Don't assume that what you see in front of you is the only thing in play at any given moment. This may be the hardest thing you're going to have to do because we came from a worldview perspective. Where we live, where we're born into, we came hardwired from the womb, one, sin, but number two, everything we hear is, presupposes naturalism and is bent against supernaturalism. The education system, all of it is built upon naturalistic, macroevolutionary principles down to the system and to the unseen things, thoughts and opinions are built on something that is a lie. So we are wired to automatically question whether or not unseen things are real. And we default to fixing problems with our effort rather than fasting and praying like the Lord taught us to do. The only explanation for that is sin, one. Number two, we don't believe the unseen realm is real. <laughs> I, maybe there's a third option. Please share it with me. But don't assume there's not more in play. Three, get to know your Bible better and know yourself. You need to know yourself. As you get to know your Bible better, get to know yourself better so you can discern the interplay between how you are put together, because each one's wired different, and what you're hearing in your thoughts, in your beliefs, your interactions with others, and your experiences. As you get to know your Bible, please get to know yourself. Study yourself. Learn who you are. Learn how you're wired. Take note of your past. Take note of what has happened to you and how it affects how you think and how you feel. Because I promise you, you're being watched. Remember one of their names is watchers? And these suckers are observant, and they will use yourself against you. Four, put on the armor of God with prayer in order to stand faithfully strong against the enemy's schemes. Paul taught them how to do that. Truth, put on truth. That's your Bible. It's dealing in reality and created order. 
It's righteousness. Readiness with the good news. Always be ready with the good news. Always be ready. Faith. To extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy because he's shooting them. Salvation. Make sure you know the Lord and the Word of God. Put those things on daily, moment by moment. Fifth and finally, worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. Psalm 22, 3 says, You are holy and you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. We experience the presence of the Lord when we open our mouths and sing. And so be a worshiping people. If you're struggling, get out of bed and you say, Good morning, Holy Spirit. Thank you for this day and you're struggling. Go put on some songs. Worship songs and let it go. Just let it roll. Sit there and sing them. Sit there and sing them. Pray. Ask the Lord for help. Sing. Play those holy things over your soul. And you'll find the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Then we're going to sing. And trust the Lord with our time. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would take these lots of words, lots of words. And that you would cause them to land at just the right place, just the right heart just the right moment in time that you would work it for good and if I have if I have erred there's a lot of stuff said if I've erred if I've stepped out of the bounds of of your word God would you just erase that from our memories don't let it come up Holy Spirit pray that you'd only let what will produce the fruit of your presence remain and Lord you'd win a victory for somebody today it should bring a win for folks today. That there be some manner of win over dark things. And forces of evil arrayed against us in the heavenly places. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish all of your good purpose this morning. That the unseen realm that are loyal to the kingdom, God, that they would be ministering helps today. As the writer of Hebrews says, sent to serve on behalf of those who inherit eternal life. So whatever needs to be done in the unseen realm around us, would you do it? see fit to do it for us. Let us reap the fruit off of some holy air. It be a tangible manifestation of your presence for us this morning so we would be fight sin well, love you more, and get after the work of your kingdom well.